0: Hello! Welcome to the multi-billionaire toddler edition of Slate Money, your guide to the business and finance news of the week. I'm Felix Salmon of Axios. I'm joined by Elizabeth Spires. Hello. I'm joined by Emily Peck of Axios. Hello, hello, hello. (laughs) Hello, hello, hello. We're going to talk about a multi-billionaire toddler this week, because we didn't last week, going into depth, or a certain amount of depth anyway, on this whole issue of Twitter versus Elon Musk, which is now going to be a court case in Delaware. We are going to talk about crimes and whether you should talk about your crimes on Slack or text messages, (laughs) or even whether you should be texting at all if you work for a bank. The banks all seem to be getting fined for this. We are going to talk about the National Bureau for Economic Research and whether it should be publishing research that is bought and paid for by companies like Uber. We have a quite fun Slate Plus segment about Bill Gates and his donation to the Gates Foundation and whether this is a reaction to what Mackenzie Scott has been doing in terms of increasing her giving. We have a whole bit about heated car seats. It's all coming up (laughs) on Slate Money. So I thought when Slate Money came out last week that we were the victims of terrible timing. The Elon Musk declaration that he was terminating his takeover bid of Twitter came out after we recorded Slate Money, but before Slate Money actually came out in that short little interregnum. And I'm like, oh, that's terrible timing. Turns out the timing wasn't that bad. Because if you just waited a few days, what you got was this glorious, what was it like 200 page lawsuit from Twitter, accusing Elon Musk of all manner of deal malfeasance and bad faith. And it was lovely reading. So we have all manner of juicy things to gossip about, which of course I love because talking about Elon Musk and Twitter is my love language. But I know, Emily, that talking about Elon Musk and Twitter is your idea of just like being dragged through a gooseberry bush backwards until maybe you've changed your mind. Maybe you've been persuaded that this is not such a terrible thing to talk about.
1: Yes, I was somewhat persuaded this week that this is an important thing to talk about. It's not just entertaining and salacious, but also frustrating that a billionaire, his whims have taken over the conversation. It's important to talk about the billionaire's whims because Twitter is important. It is our public square in our times. It's where important figures, political and business go to tell you what's going on and the question of who is in charge of it actually really, really matters. So I have come over to the dark side with you, Felix. I think we should talk about this.
0: Okay. So Elizabeth, we have a very odd situation going on right now, which is that the avatar of the dark side, Mr. Elon Musk, has decided that he doesn't want to own twitter after all so we should all be rejoicing at this because the people who actually seem to be slowly getting a grip on content moderation and that kind of thing will be able to continue to do so and we won't have elon coming in and saying give donald trump back his megaphone and let a thousand hate speeches bloom on the other hand twitter itself and its current ceo and its current board are all saying no no wait no actually, Elon does have to buy Twitter and we want to be bought by Elon. So the good guys want the bad guy to win and the bad guy wants the bad guy to lose?
2: I'm not sure that's quite it. I feel like Twitter management has no incentive than to try to hold Elon's feet to the fire. And I think the most likely scenario is that he just ends up paying a billion dollar breakup fee and doesn't own Twitter. But that may just be wishful thinking on my part as a Twitter user who dreads the prospect of a potentially... Elon owns Twitter.
0: So that would clearly be a win for Elon. He has caused way more than a billion dollars of damage to Twitter. He has been, as we learned from the lawsuit this week, acting in incredibly bad faith for a very long time. A billion dollars is basically nothing to him. It's basically nothing to Twitter. The valuation of Twitter would plunge relative to the takeover price were he to get away for such a small amount of money. And if he were to get away for such a small amount of money, that would incentivize anyone who got cold feet in an M&A transaction to come up with any old spurious reason to pull out and say, well, I can, no matter what my legal obligations are, if I just make enough noise and tweet enough poop emojis, then I can get away for nothing more than the relatively small breakup fee. I mean, it would set a bad precedent.
2: That's true. Another thing to consider, though, is from where Twitter sits, they may not, I think, interpersonally, want Must to own the company, but they do have an obligation to shareholders. So if this did somehow result in a judgment in a Delaware court where the court says or the judge says you have to close the deal. Um, and this is what's called for specific performance reasons. You know, you can't really argue that Twitter would be going against the interest of shareholders there. I think we all know why it would probably be a bad outcome. But what's the argument for not doing it? It is
0: absolutely obvious that the best interests of shareholders are to get fifty-four twenty per share rather than, I don't know, $25 per share or whatever that, it, that Twitter would be worth absent this deal. But in the back of my head, I have this idea that the judge grants specific performance. Elon is then obligated to buy Twitter. And, you know, instead of buying Twitter and then immediately taking it public again and selling all of his shares to the public, he just says, why don't I just pay you guys X billion dollars and give it back to the existing shareholders? And you wind up with that kind of, post-judgment settlement rather than, I think, what most people are expecting right now, which is a pre-judgment settlement where the two sides come to some agreement, either on a slightly lower purchase price or on a multi-billion dollar settlement from Elon. There's a lot of different possible outcomes here.
1: Felix, you said something earlier that I was going to ask you to unpack some more, which is that Elon has already done more than a billion dollars of damage to Twitter can you talk more about what that damage looks like? Because at the same time, this has been going on since March, the whole tech sector has been kind of falling apart. Tech stocks broadly have fallen. So can you separate out what Elon did to Twitter and what just happened to Twitter because of bigger trends there?
0: So we don't know what the Twitter share price would look like absent this takeover bid. It would probably be more or less where it is or even below where it is right now, because there's still some possibility that it gets taken over by Musk. What we do know, and we learned in this Twitter complaint, is that the prospect of a Musk takeover has completely demolished morale within Twitter. Elon Musk has said he wants to fire a bunch of people. He wants everyone to start coming back to the office, Twitter is basically a fully remote company at this point. This would be a major upheaval. He has also, in the face of all of this bad morale and people wanting to leave, he has refused to allow Twitter to put in any kind of retention plan, which would keep the key executives in place through his takeover or lack thereof. So people are leaving even more than they normally would because Twitter isn't, he's be, Twitter's hands are being bound by the terms of the agreement where they need Elon Musk's approval to do things like that, and he's not giving that approval. And then more generally, I think apropos what you were saying earlier about the social utility of Twitter and the way that it is this public square and it does have this genuine importance to the planet and to democracy, I think a lot of people at Twitter are with you on that and they see all of that kind of going up in smoke should Elon Musk buy the company and that disillusionment about the way in which a whimsical mustache twirling billionaire can just wake up one morning and destroy such a central part of what has become a central part of the democratic process. I think has really harmed a lot of the morale within Twitter, which also has had a lot of job losses and so forth. So yeah, I think Twitter as a company, it has gone through periods of dysfunction, and it's gone through periods of actually working reasonably well. Before Elon Musk came along, it was in one of those periods of working reasonably well. And now it is definitely back in one of those periods of dysfunction.
2: Yeah, and it has to be demoralizing to watch him do these things that are just obvious bad faith. I mean, the complaint is littered with examples of him saying something in public and then contradicting it in private vis-a-vis Twitter. So he says that he thinks the bots are a problem and Twitter says, "Okay, let's meet, let's talk about it. And then he doesn't show up for the meeting and then tweets again that the bots are the problem. He complains, he says he's going to fire people and, you know, sort of indirectly Points to who, and then Twitter goes off and actually fires those people. And then he his rebuttal is that they needed his permission to do it, which actually they didn't. It's in terms of the Twitter agreement. One of the things that they actually argued for was that Twitter didn't have to clear that with them, but they did. He had talked about it. They were aware of what his intentions were. So if you're at Twitter right now and you see this guy who says that he's interested in the company but is just acting in bad faith in public all the time, that has to be incredibly depressing for you if you're there.
0: Not to mention the fact that the CEO's full-time job is now managing a sale process and trying to manage this toddler, this multi-billionaire toddler, rather than trying to run a company. Where if you've ever worked for a company which is about to be taken over in a quasi-hostile takeover bid, you know that like nothing gets done in that company mm. during that period.
1: Right. But it's not like just a... Play devil's advocate a little bit. It's not like Twitter was this great company and then Elon came along, right? I mean, in the January 6th hearings this week, they played a recording of an anonymous Twitter employee talking about how he was watching as extremists planned the insurrection ahead of January 6th on Twitter and was like sounding the alarms about it and nothing was happening. And he described like a feeling of dread, knowing that this was about to happen and feeling like there's nothing. That could be done about it. Aside from the social aspects there or the political or just the scariness of that, there's also the fact that the company has never really done very well, has never really made a lot of money, has never really, you know, innovated on the product very much in any way that would have made a lot of money either.
2: Yeah, I think even at Twitter, people would not deny the fact that the company has problems and that they needed to be fixed. I think the issue is Elon Musk, the person to fix them, And, you know, there was a statement that one of the partners at Andreessen Horowitz made about a potential Elon-run Twitter with regard to the bot problem, where they literally said, Elon Musk is the, quote, only person in the world who can fix this problem at Twitter, which is such a crazy statement to make. Elon has no experience with this kind of problem or this kind of business. And I think, you know, he came along at an opportunistic time where people were discussing that the company was not in great shape and that maybe someone else should run it. But, you know, I think we've seen in the past few weeks that an Elon run Twitter would definitely be a bigger problem than the status quo.
0: So the partner at Anderson Horowitz, who was... Deputized to go work with Elon Musk on getting this deal done was then promptly fired by Elon Musk, this guy <laughs> Bob Swan. I don't think Andrew Horowitz is super in love with Elon quite as much as they were anymore, and I think to your point, Emily, it's true that Twitter has not made as much money as Facebook, but it's also true to your earlier point that it has become this very important public utility, and maybe it's okay. If public utilities don't make a huge amount of money for themselves and for for private shareholders, maybe it's okay that Twitter just makes a lot of money instead of an absolute shit ton of money. The problem with that is that so long as it's not making an absolute shit ton of money, you do have the possibility that a whimsical billionaire can come along and offer such a lot of money for it that he can just buy it as a personal plaything. You know, if Twitter was worth three times more, Elon could never have afforded to do what he did. So that's the argument for it making an absolute shit ton of money. But it's still a profitable company. They have been innovating more over the past, say, nine to 12 months than they had been previously. They do seem to be better at shipping product. Personally, I... I'm still annoyed that they took away TweetDeck from Macintosh, but that's just me. But, you know, things like the the Twitter Spaces product is doing quite well, although they fired a few of those people. This new little thing they have where you can set your tweet so that only people you follow reply to it, really useful in terms of preventing abuse on the platform, that kind of thing. Like, it's improving. It's not improving by leaps and bounds, but show me the social network that is. Instagram is, I would argue... Even worse worse than Twitter. I mean, worse than Twitter in terms of it's a complete mess. It's becoming completely unusable at this point.
1: Right. I mean, so who do you want to own Twitter, you guys? Who should own it?
0: The Wikimedia Foundation.
1: (laughs) So a non-profit, essentially. Yeah.
0: I look, I mean, I don't know if I'm being entirely serious there, but I, I do think that the privatization of the public square is always a little bit dangerous. And it's even more dangerous if it's not owned by a disparate group of public pension funds and shareholders and BlackRock, and instead just becomes owned by one slightly crazy guy.
1: Yeah. And it's not that Twitter's suing Elon Musk because Twitter wants Elon Musk to own Twitter. They just want to get more than a billion dollars from this whole debacle, right? I mean, that's really the goal of that lawsuit, I'm
0: assuming. It's really interesting, right? Right now, the two sides are so far apart, right? Right. Twitter is like, we want you to spend $44 billion. And Elon is basically saying, I want to spend $0. Or possibly, <laughs> even reading between the lines, I want you to pay me a billion dollars. He's kind of saying that Twitter <laughs> broke the agreement and so Twitter has to pay the breakup fee rather than him. But like it's in that minus one to plus $1 billion that he wants, which is a very long way from $44 billion. So it's not obvious that they're going to be able to find some kind of mutually acceptable compromise especially given that elon is not entirely rational in these things right if you went up to a public company board of directors who are doing a takeover bid and you say to them there is a 75 percent chance that you will be forced to spend 44 billion dollars on a company you don't want how about just spending seven billion dollars to get out of the deal they would be like okay that makes sense elon doesn't think that way he's like well i have a 25 percent chance of not being found you know specific performance so i'll take my chances
2: he also just appears to think that he can shitpost his way out of it if he shifts sentiment with either i don't know twitter employees or shareholders or something with all these insane public statements that his circumstances will change and that's you know, it makes zero sense to
0: me. <laughs> he has been shitposting. And, and, like, it's pretty obvious that he doesn't, not only doesn't understand the bot problem, but he just doesn't understand the legal process either. You know, the, these crazy memes he's tweeting about how, haha, now Twitter's going to have to reveal its bot situation and discovery. It's like, no, it's not. I feel like of all, the actors here of all of the lawyers and Delaware Chancery Court judges and journalists and onlookers and everything—I feel like the only one who isn't like reading Matt Levine's column is Elon Musk.
1: <laughs> Served him so far.
2: I think it's also not totally clear that he—it may not be that he doesn't understand the process, at least at the thirty-thousand-foot level. But he's so accustomed to not being held accountable for anything, and he's made a an entire personal brand of trolling the SEC. He may just assume that all of this works the same way and that he's above it and that somehow the laws and norms can be violated with impunity because he has done that on many occasions.
0: We should mention that the SEC came out with another complaint against him this week as well. So he's fighting not only Twitter, but also the SEC. He's got, you know, he's fighting on two fronts while also running. I've kind of lost track of how many companies he's running these days. Definitely SpaceX and Tesla and Neuralink and the boring company. But I think there might have been one or two I've missed. I'm not sure.
1: I think the SEC is not the same thing as the Delaware Chancery Court, which is the court in Delaware that is devoted to what is it devoted to again deals, deal deals. making, deal, deal, deal unmaking. Yeah,
0: every every single American corporation is incorporated in Delaware, pretty much. So all of the big. M&A disputes and that kind of thing always wind up in Delaware Chancery Court. So the judges there know their onions. And while they (laughs) definitely are going to worry about what happens if Elon just doesn't comply with an order for specific performance, they also worry about the precedent they would set if they fail to punish him effectively for his cocking a snook at the entire system because they are the system, right? They need to fight back somehow. And this is this is a point that, that Matt made in one of his newsletters this week is that a lot of the complaint is really about building up high dudgeon in the judge to try and say that the equities here mitigate or militate in favor of Twitter right? more, more than it is about making an, a, a fine legal argument. It's basically saying... You can't let him get away with this.
1: Mm, right. And th- these guys are tough. Like they're better than the SEC in terms of making companies do things, right? Like you wrote about the example, I guess it was Tyson that was forced to go through with a deal it, it wanted to back out of. And they actually made this company go through with something. It's not right. the same thing as the SEC levying a fine that is like nothing to Elon. And, we we will talk more about fines in our next segment, I think. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply.
2: With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere.
0: Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom?
2: Sorry,
1: sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo when we lost track of time.
0: No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you Lucky.
1: Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
2: Hello, I'm Emmy Harper. On the slow newscast from Tortoise, I tell the story of how a Hong Kong billionaire was silenced.
1: I got bombs thrown
0: into my house. I got people came here, ransacked my computer. And I, I got people fractured me. I got this and that. But I'm safe
2: and what it reveals about the freedoms Hong Kong no longer enjoys. Listen to Hong Kong's Rebel Billionaire on the Slow Newscast wherever you get your podcasts.
0: Is that a segue to talk about the billion-dollar <laughs> fines on banks for texting? Because it turns out that Twitter DMs are not the only way that people communicate. That They also communicate via WhatsApp. They communicate via Slack DMs. They communicate via text message. And in the age of remote work, we all communicate using all of these different methods. Emily, you and I are on a slate slack where we talk about possible things that we might talk about on this here show. The slate slack had a little barfy moment this week and (laughs) kicked you off. Boo hiss. And... So when I was saying, like, should we talk about this this story about all the fines on the banks? I texted it to you because it's (laughs) fine. This is what people who work together do when they're communicating. You know, they might go and play golf together and have a conversation or they might WhatsApp each other or they might text each other. It turns out that all of this is actually completely illegal. And (laughs) (laughs) well, it's completely illegal if you work for a highly regulated bank. Elizabeth, bring us up to speed on where we're at on fines.
2: So we're looking at a case where the banks who typically are not expected to pay big fines for things like this, being in non-sanctioned communication channels that don't necessarily comply with requirements for overall compliance, are now getting fined pretty big amounts. And in one case, at least, board members of the bank are being Find close to $80,000 apiece for not monitoring the situation. So this is a new level of enforcement.
0: Yeah, the standard fine seems to be $200 million per bank plus $80,000 per board member, which is beginning to feel like real money. But Emily, as the workplaceologist of this group, do you think that even fines of this magnitude are going to be able to change the broader culture that we live in of people just communicating via whatsapp or text because that's what they do
1: right yeah that is the question i mean to pull back it seems like the regulators have are going to extract a billion dollars in fines from these five from five of the biggest banks because everyone was talking on unsanctioned messaging services something that everyone does in every workplace across the country and is only increased in frequency in the pandemic when a lot of people are working remotely. So we're slacking, we're texting, we're signaling, everything is happening all at once. And it does seem like it would be very hard to stop it. But I do think that if anyone can stop it, it's probably these big banks because like they were able to rein in emailing, right? For example, I was friendly with someone whose job was to just read banker emails all day. They worked in compliance. I mean, I think if any company or any workplace has a shot at maybe reining some of this in, it would be at these big financial institutions. As for the rest of us... No way. I mean, this is how it is now. That We don't talk in person, so you have to talk somehow. And culturally, the phone has kind of gone by the wayside. I find if I call someone now without pre-planning the call, I have to apologize, right? You have to say, oh, I'm sorry for calling you out of the blue. Like That used to be just what you did. You called people out of the blue. There was no apology for it. That was how it worked. So I don't think we can go back.
0: I, I think there's a weird corollary here to the use of cash in countries like Sweden, where no one uses cash anymore, right? So there used to be this method of communication, which was kind of a little bit like using cash for payments, which was completely untraceable, and no regulators could have any visibility into it. And that was people walking around the office and talking to each other. And if we sat next to each other in the office and I was like, hey, Emily, do you think we should do a crime? And you'd be like, yeah, let's do a crime. And then we went off and did the crime. There would be no record of that conversation. A bit like when, you know, criminals wind up, you know, doing some criminal deal with each other and paying each other in cash. There's no record of that transaction. Now that everyone's working remotely, you wind up having to communicate in some kind of a way that, there always is a record. And the regulators are like, this is awesome. We really get much more visibility into how people are interacting with each other than we ever used to have. But we need to make sure that we are capturing all of the possible channels that they're communicating in. And if they're using personal email or text message or WhatsApp, we can't do that. That is clearly illegal under the terms of the regulation. So we just want to make sure that everything they say to each other has some kind of visibility through to regulators.
1: Right, and I guess what you're saying is it's kind of like they're not going to be able to get everything, but they never have gotten everything because people used to talk in person and that wasn't captured by regulators either. So maybe it's not that different.
2: And if you're a determined bad actor, zero tech in-person criming is still an option.
1: That's true. You can still do in-person criming.
0: (laughs) I I just feel like if you look at all of the bad things that bankers have been dinged for over the years, there are one or two determined bad actors. Like Tim Leisner of Goldman Sachs springs to mind. He was clearly corrupt. He was taking backhanders. Like, he is obviously someone who was very consciously doing crimes and was talking to people and being like, let's do a crime together. But if you look at, say, like the people who were, you know, manipulating LIBOR, say, or something like that, I don't think that they had the same level of conscious crime doing. They were just like, let's make some money. This is a great way of like, you know, moving the markets around and making some money and, and being clever. And I do think that when, when you see the, the records of what they said to each other and all of the smoking guns that come from these electronic records that were captured because that's what you have to do when you work in the bank, it wasn't that they were trying to hide necessarily what they were doing in these things. So he was like, do you think you could push it this way? Do you think you could push it that way? A lot of the time, they just felt that was their job rather than this was something that they should be keeping quiet and not be talking about on a channel that regulators would be able to see.
1: So in other words, the people who are doing real crimes have always gone out of their way to hide the crime doing and keep it off like recordable messages or media and the innocent banker crime doers didn't.
0: I mean, to be clear, they're still guilty. They're still guilty of doing (laughs) crimes, but they're not sort of consciously guilty at the time you don't quite have the same kind of i need to be very careful about just speaking in this in a way that won't be recorded because i'm doing a crime you know and they should know better and they get fined and sometimes even jailed if they don't know better and that's as it should be but i do think that if you do manage to record all of the conversations then you will actually wind up with quite a lot of evidence of what people were doing because As you know, as we all know, when when we're on text message or Slack or whatever, we just say things, even though sometimes we think maybe I shouldn't be saying this in a place that can be recorded.
2: Mm -hmm. Is that a little bit exculpatory for the people doing the crimes? No. They say, well, I thought this was acceptable crime as evidenced by the fact that I documented every single bit of it.
0: Yeah, no, I don't I don't think that works as a defense.
2: I was thinking
1: about this too in the context just of, again, I'm sorry I keep mentioning politics, but the January 6th hearings also, there's been a lot of great, I don't know if great's the right word, there's been a lot of texts coming out of that where, you know, someone from Brad Parscale, the, the Trump campaign guy, is saying, you know, he feels guilty for enabling this crime and, you know, talking to another person who says it's fine. Politically, it's really important to be keeping track of text messages and signal and email, it's its all become very fraught and controversial. I mean, you could go back to the Hillary Clinton emails and she didn't do email on the right servers or whatever. Um, Tr- Trump himself famously doesn't leave a trail or a record of anything um, in contrast with like the ultimate crime doer president, Richard Nixon, who taped everything. What a fool. It's just so tricky. Or maybe it's not. Maybe you just always talk in person or on the phone and you don't write your crimes down on Slack. A duh.
0: Don't write crimes down <laughs> on Slack. You do realize, people, if you're listening to this, that <laughs> even if your Slack gets deleted, it's never deleted. It can always oh, be found. God. That's so awful.
1: Do you ever feel like there's nothing new in the news? You know, there are urgent things happening in the world around you, but all you hear is noise. That's why we made What Next? Our goal is to tell you the stories you haven't heard before. Or maybe a different side to the story you thought you already knew all about. I'm Mary Harris, the host of What Next? And I love my job because it helps me cut through the noise of the news. And then I get to bring it to you. Together, we can figure
2: out what next.
0: But Emily, let's talk about conflicts, other other kind of like... We're not going to call it a crime, but we're going to call it a an ethical conundrum, let's say, which is, let's say that I am the National Bureau of Economic Research. And I am the most prestigious outlet for economic research, arguably in the world, certainly in America. And I have all of these very prestigious fellows and research associates, including Alan Kruger, who used to work at the White House as the chair of the Council of Economic Advisers, and is now a professor at Princeton. And Alan Kruger comes up to me and says, here's a paper I have just written about how much people make when they work for Uber. And it reflects pretty well on Uber. Do I publish this important piece of research that will then go on to be cited by 981 other scholarly articles and will become a major part of the literature? Or do I ask him, wait, hang on a sec, did Uber pay you to write this article? At which point he says, yes. And I say, well, I have two choices really. One is I say, well, that's fine. So long as you say somewhere in the footnote or hint somewhere in the footnote that you were paid, we can publish it anyway. Or I say, well, no, that's too much of a conflict. If you've been paid to write that article, then Uber can put out the article because they paid you. But that shouldn't really be like published in a scholarly journal.
1: I don't think disclosing in a footnote is enough in a case like that. I think you have to do better. Uber either is the one to publish it or it says Uber sponsored research at the top of the paper. I don't think you should hide that stuff in a footnote. It's really important and obviously skews the whole endeavor, right? That's just the bottom line.
2: I mean, one thing I don't quite understand about uh, these cases, though, is that a lot of research, a lot of academic research is corporately funded. And normally, Mm -hmm. you you go through a research paper and that, that is, it's not a footnote, but, you know, in the notes, it's usually this research was, you know, financed by or whatever. And generally speaking, people consider all of that legitimate as long as it passes peer review. So is the difference here that the academics were paid directly as consultants
0: well, so one of the problems here is that, although it did pass peer review, the peer reviewers didn't really have access to the data that Uber provided to Alan Kruger, right? So Uber was like, went up to Alan Kruger, and and by the way, we should mention, this is all part of the Uber files reporting that appeared in The Guardian this week. It's all part of the big, it wasn't just Alan Kruger, it was a whole bunch of academics that so they paid to write papers. They went up to Alan Kruger and said, listen, we will provide you a bunch of data and then you can go and write a paper off it, and when he then sent his paper to reviewer number one and reviewer number two, they could read the paper and say, "Well, I guess this makes sense." but they couldn't replicate the results because they didn't have the data
1: i mean that's that's very problematic, and I think it I mean broadly speaking it is problematic that companies are funding so much research and typically the NBER papers i see like coming out every monday funded by companies like i get company funded research all the time like in my inbox from but it's usually very clear like indeed the job sites always sending out its its research or things like this that's sort of different right
0: yeah uber had for a while there during the period that these leaks cover uber had a very interesting and very nerdy blog where they would put up long and pretty detailed posts about this is what our data is showing. And you could, and I did go back and forth with Uber and get data from them and put charts together and talk about all of these things in a very interesting way. And Uber was part of that microeconomic conversation and they were definitely engaging in economic discourse. But, as a corporate actor. And I think that is fine. And I think if they want to pay economists to write papers as part of that discourse, that is also fine. And they can publish that. I do think that, especially when it becomes an NBER paper, it's a little bit weird for a paper about Uber to be published by NBER when that paper was paid for by Uber.
1: Yeah, that's straight up. That's not right. (laughs) It's different from, like you said, it's different from a company sp- sponsoring an economist and being upfront about it. And sometimes companies sponsor economists to do research on the whole sector that doesn't seem as self-serving. Like Uber funds research that finds Uber is good is obviously a problem. Even if it's completely legitimate, it's still, what are you going to do with that? Uber is promoting research that says it's great. It's just, ugh. no one wants to cover that.
2: I think that's true. I think that, you know, if, and you Anybody who's willing to kind of risk their hard-won academic reputation for a pretty nominal consulting fee, all things considered, you know, I'm not saying... I, I would that say $100,000 $100, is
0: more than a nominal fee.
2: Well, would you throw your entire career away for $100,000? But this is the whole point, right? Obviously, <laughs> you're not throwing
0: your entire career away, right? He published this paper. Everyone knew. He did disclose in the paper that he had been working as a consultant for, but he didn't Disclose how much he had been paid his career suffered no damage for having worked with and for uber you can see many many academic professors whether it's like rick mishkin or hal scott or larry summers or you name it who take very large amounts of money from the private sector and suffer no professional negative repercussions whatsoever i feel like there is literally zero examples of someone throwing their career away or suffering any real career damage from doing anything like this.
2: Well, I'm I'm admittedly arguing against an ethical point that I believe, which is that these sort of things do constitute a conflict of interest. And when we can't avoid them, you should. But I'm also, you know, there was a bit in the the article about the situation that said, you know, the, the findings of the actual report were not entirely positive. The way that they were sort of fed to journalists in bits took out the positive aspects of the report and gave them to journalists as de facto evidence of Uber being good. But if he had put out a research paper that, let's say, was 100% positive in favor of Uber, and on peer review, it looked like it had been corrupted. I mean, I think that's a a different scenario. So I guess the question that I'm I'm thinking about is do we think... I don't
0: think so, because because that's the way that peer review works, is that the... paper doesn't come out until after it's been peer-reviewed, right? So if the peer yeah. reviewers do find something in there where they're like, actually, shouldn't you mention this thing which might not redound so well in, for Uber and we won't approve it until this gets included, then either it doesn't get published or that winds up getting included. So he, like, the mm-hmm. author winds up coming out smelling of roses either way.
1: There are a few things I want to mention that I think listeners might want to write in and tell me more about. But when we're talking about economic research, a lot of it is pretty squishy, right? So... Even if there were reputational consequences, which it, there weren't in this case, there's no like, not none, but the real world consequences of this misleading research are kind of squishier and harder to untangle. But if you were like doing research in, say, like pharmaceuticals, and Pfizer sponsored an academic to look into whether a drug is good or bad or kills people or doesn't kill people, the stakes are so much higher. And I wonder how that is typically handled and i am bringing it up but i don't know the answer
0: no no we should get ivan oransky my former reuters colleague on the show to talk about this but he's written about this quite a lot and the fact is that absent like a full-on retraction of a paper that made actual errors it's very rare to see negative professional consequences for going off and taking a huge amount of money from the pharmaceutical industry to write papers that come to the conclusion that they want. Or put it this way, if your paper doesn't come to the conclusion that they want, they just never publish it. Right.
1: <laughs> and also, I mean, I don't think this news and our conversation about Alan Kruger is going to stop the next Uber from sponsoring research into why it's great or isn't great. A lot of companies now have in-house economists and economic teams that they ostensibly are marketing arms. They're meant to market the company, get the brand name out there, all this, but they present them as sort of in-house think tanks almost, right? And a lot of times that's how they're received. And financial institutions, that's bread and butter. I mean, my inbox is flooded with the smart commentary from various financial institutions that I'm supposed to take as truth, but I mean, does come from a business.
0: Yeah. Or as you say, non-financial institutions, which all nevertheless have a chief economist.
1: Yeah, a lot of places. You Mm. know,
0: Hal Varian joined Google as their chief economist very early on, back in the mid 90s, and started a trend, you know, like all companies have a chief economist these days. And you're oh, right, that a lot of those chief economists job is basically to be a rent a quote to journalists and to get their name in the press.
1: Oh yeah, I mean it's like a very coveted marketing strategy, and it's not easy to pull off. And there's great jobs in it for economists. So I'm assuming the job market for economists can be pretty tough to get a well-paying, you know, two hundred thousand, three hundred thousand, four hundred thousand dollar a year kind of job. But in the private sector, that's no problem. And like economic journalists too, they move over to that side as well because it's sort of it's interesting work, and I don't think it's being done in bad faith most of the time.
0: Yeah, and I'm pretty sure that this Uber work from Alan Kruger was not in a bad faith either. He was a much beloved economist, and no one is accusing him of writing the paper that Uber wanted him to write just because Uber paid him, mm-hmm. right? But it was the other way around. Like, Uber paid him because they kind of knew that he was going to wind up writing that paper because that's what he already believed. But mm-hmm. still, if it's Uber-sponsored and if Uber pays for the paper... Honestly, I don't even think this is really about Alan Kruger. I think this is really about the NBER. If a company, if you have a bought and paid for paper, that shouldn't come out under the auspices of NBER.
1: But especially because they publish working papers that haven't even been peer-reviewed yet. But the reason journalists will write about them is because they come out on NBER. So you say, oh, this is on NBER, so it's a working draft, but this is legit stuff. So yeah, that seems like a basic rule that should be followed. Didn't you ask them about it? Felix, the NBER?
0: I did. And it was really interesting. They, it took them a long time to get back to me. I thought they were just ghosting me. And then eventually they came back with, what's the opposite of a non-denial denial, like a non-confirmation confirmation? They were like, the NBER rules say that you need to disclose. And there was a disclosure. But they didn't quite <laughs> come out and say, like, the disclosure was adequate and this was fine. But they didn't not say that. They certainly didn't say there was anything problematic about it. I think it's time for a numbers round. Elizabeth, you have a number this week.
2: Yeah, I have two numbers. One is seventy-two percent, and the other is seven point eight percent. And this is just a continuation of our discussion last week around air travel. So Bloomberg had an article on ranking the worst European airports by delays and cancellations. So. If you're traveling in Europe anytime soon, it may be useful to have this in your sort of planning calculations. The worst airport by delays was the Brussels airport. 72% of flights are delayed. And the worst for cancellation was Frankfurt, 7.8% cancellations.
0: Well, as someone who's not a massive fan of either Brussels or Frankfurt, I'm like, yeah, (laughs) let's avoid both of those places. (laughs) Emily, what's your number?
1: My number is... $19,000, that's how much it costs in the United States to have a baby without complications.
0: I would have guessed higher, to be honest.
1: And even women with really good health insurance, they pay almost $3,000 out of pocket to have a baby. This is the Kaiser survey. So I don't know. Seems like a lot. That's all I have to say.
2: I had excellent insurance. And just because I had a C section, I think my out of pocket costs were close to 26 grand. Yeah. What? That's right.
0: But I thought everyone in America gets C sections. Isn't it? Isn't America famous for giving everyone a C section, whether they want it or not?
1: <laughs> well, according to Kaiser, the cost of an average C section, all in, twenty six thousand two hundred and eighty dollars, with about thirty two hundred out of pocket. So Elizabeth's experience is a little better than average, I guess.
0: Elizabeth's experience was like she had to pay the whole thing herself, even though she had insurance, which yep. seems insane.
1: Yeah, it's insane. The whole thing is insane. I remember my first baby. I just kept getting bills that I didn't understand and kept paying them. And I think it must've amounted to more than a thousand dollars. Cause you get like a $50 bill, $170 bill. You don't know what they're for. And after a while you just, you keep just signing the checks, but not everyone is so lucky to be able to just have that money to send over. And there's not much more to say, but if you're in the hole for 3000, just going in and then you have to, diapers and this and that you can't work. It's like a mess.
2: So you're saying that maybe maybe forcing people to have babies they don't want is a bad idea? Is that a is that your?
1: I mean, yeah, just from an economic (laughs) financial perspective, very cold financial perspective, it's a bad idea. Not going to give them money to make up for it.
0: This is clearly why the world needs Elon Musk to have ever more babies because he can afford it, right? (laughs) There you go. There you go.
2: Father all the babies.
0: My number is eighteen.
2: That Elon Musk's children. Which is
0: the number of uh, <laughs> children that Elon has. No one knows how many children Elon Musk has. It's this big mystery. His dad is busy having babies as well. It's all The whole thing is a bit icky, actually, especially with regard to his dad. But anyway, I'm going to move on to a less icky subject, which is the number of dollars that it costs you if you are in South Korea to have heated seats in your BMW.
1: <laughs> okay.
0: Per month. <laughs> What? BMW heated seats in South Korea are now no longer something that just come with the car. They are a subscription product. And if you want what? heated seats, you pay that you pay BMW $18 a month. And then when you stop paying $18 a month, you no longer have heated seats anymore.
2: What? Why? That, that w- that would, is- you, would you personally pay $216 a year to have a cozier butt while you're driving? I have heated
1: seats in my 10-year-old's. Volkswagen Jetta, and I love them so much. And the idea that I would have to pay $18 a month for 10 years to have them is, do the math, Felix, I can't do it. Seems like a lot and is crazy.
0: Elizabeth says it's $216 a year, but I don't think it is. I think realistically, you only pay for what, three or four months a year, right? Most of the time, you're not heating those seats.
1: Look, at I actually... I'm mocked in the Peck family for using the heated seats all the time. When the air conditioning's on in the car, I'm a little chilly, so I, I put the heated seats. <laughs> I don't know if we want to keep this in.
0: We, we definitely, definitely are keeping that in, Emily.
1: Yeah, that is crazy. Why are they doing that? I don't understand how they can justify that. It doesn't make sense to me. That's a built-in feature. Why does BMW need to take a cut every month? This is an outrage.
0: <laughs> I have managed to shock Emily Peck, which is
1: <laughs> What is this?
0: Anyone who thinks that subscriptions for heated seats is a good idea should write in to Slatemoney at slate.com and we will read your email in full just so that we can have a little bit more of Emily's spluttering because Emily's spluttering <laughs> Is awesome. In, in the meantime, I think, yeah, we should probably wrap up this show. Except for you wonderful Slate Plus listeners, we are going to treat you to a story all about Bill Gates and the Gates Foundation. But the rest of us, that's it for Slate Money. Many thanks to Seaplane Armada and Jessamine Molly for producing the show. And we'll be back next week with yet another Slate Money.
1: Wait, Felix. Yes. I'm reading on CNN about BMW and... (laughs) (laughs) It might be British drivers paying the money, but not South Korean drivers. The South Korean program was a misunderstanding, according to BMW, just a database error.
0: Okay, so if it's Brits, it's fine. (laughs) Okay. You don't have any objection to Brits doing it, just the Koreans, right?
1: No, I object to the whole thing. It's crazy. (laughs) I don't understand.